This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome to the show. Here we go with my uh, first guest this morning, Kevin Falcon, the former liberal MLA, the former liberal finance minister in B.C., making it official last night. He is running for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. I think he's the clear front runner for the job, and I'm pleased he could join me this morning. Kevin Falcon, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem. Have you missed me? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's been a long time. I'll tell you, you've been, uh, it's been a long time since you've been involved in public life. It you, has. You ran for this job back in 2011, uh, losing narrowly to Christy Clark, and then you returned to the private sector. Why come back now? Why do you want this job? Well, you know, for the same reason I left, ironically, uh, I left because my kids were very young. My uh, eldest daughter, Josephine, was two at the time. My wife was pregnant with our second girl, Rose. And, you know, quite frankly, I mean, I, I like politics. I enjoy it. But I wanted to go back and spend time with my family. I wanted to look after my family's future, too. And going back into the private sector, working for a great company, Anthem, and being able to spend the last decade raising my kids with my wife, uh, Jessica, has been the greatest thing I've ever done. And so... Uh, you know, that was the reason I left. But ironically, I'm coming back for that same reason, because I'm concerned about my, my girl's future uh, under an NDP government, frankly. And I'm concerned about other uh, families across the province that are thinking about their future coming out of a global pandemic, wanting to ensure we've got a government that understands actually how to do things competently, how to in, in, inspire confidence, get people to invest in the economy and create jobs and opportunities. An opportunity. Okay, you mentioned that you've been working for Anthem Properties, which is a big real estate developer. You were the vice president there. I imagine you were making a lot of money. Would you be taking a pay cut here to go back into public life? Well, you know, for sure it's going to be a financial sacrifice. It's going to be a family sacrifice. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. I think that, uh, you know, public service is, is a really important thing. And uh, it's never easy. In fact, it's the hard decision for sure. Uh, but I, I love this province very much. I'm a huge believer in British Columbia's potential and its future. And I think with the right leadership and competence, I think we can do great things. So, yeah. Why, why change the name? You mentioned last night you want to change the name of the Liberal Party. Why do you want to do that? Well, because, you know, I've spoken to literally hundreds of members across the province. And one of the things I've heard, whether they're federal liberal supporters, whether they're federal conservatives, whether they're lapsed NDP supporters, all of them have said, that they want to get beyond the name that, that, in, you know, that, that ties us to any one of the established parties. We want to have a name that reflects the biggest possible tent. And I agree with that approach. And so I think it's something we're going to look at. We're going to have a good conversation with the membership about that. And uh, if, if the membership is supportive of the idea, which I think they will be, then we'll uh, move to change the name. Okay, the NDP are already on the attack against you as the front runner for the job, saying that you would cut taxes for the wealthy. Would you do that if you're, if you're a premier? And you're running government again. Would you cut taxes for the top wage earners in the province? Uh, listen, you know, let's not buy into their silly tropes. I mean, the bottom line is when we were elected in 2001, we did a 25% across the board tax cut in our first day in office. The NDP yeah. fought that every step of the way. Why? Because we actually want to make things affordable for families. What have they done? They've introduced or raised 22 taxes since they've been elected four short years ago. That's the NDP approach. If people want to have more affordable lifestyles, 
if they want a government that's well, thinking about every dollar they take out of their paycheck, then they ought to think about a beat to liberal government, not an NDP government. Well, there's been some revisionism on whether those tax cuts were a smart thing to do back when you were in the Gordon Campbell government and you brought in that big tax cut on, on day one. George Abbott, your former cabinet colleague, recently wrote a book saying this was a mistake. It was a bad thing to do to the poor and the needy in British Columbia. Let me play a short clip here for you. Here's George Abbott, your former colleague, criticizing those tax cuts. It could have been a much happier period, particularly for the vulnerable and disadvantaged in British Columbia, had uh, it been paced in a much different way. Okay, do you disagree with your former colleague there that you guys were bad to the, the, the disadvantaged and the poor in the province when you are in power? I disagree with them 100%. Look, Let's be really, really clear about something. We inherited a mess from the NDP. They, they were in power for 10 years. Mike, you remember this. They ran deficits eight out of the 10 years. They doubled their debt. We had the highest marginal tax rate in North America. We were trying to turn things around. We got the economy moving again. We took it from the worst in the country to the first in the country. Did we make mistakes? Sure, we did. We're, no government is ever perfect. But what you have to have is the humility to acknowledge where you've made mistakes and try yeah. and do better. I tried to do that while I was in government. As you recall, I was very upfront about when we did things wrong, and I tried to correct them and, and move in a different direction okay. uh, where I identified that. Speaking to Kevin Falcon, running for the B.C. Liberal leadership, you defended the harmonized sales tax when you were in government. This was a disastrous policy by the former government, and you continue to defend it um, even during the referendum process on that very unpopular tax. Let me play a clip here for you, Kevin, from what you had to say about the HST at that time and then get your thoughts on it. I still happen to believe it's the right taxation policy. It's why 130 countries around the world utilize value-added taxation because it makes sense and it's good for investment, it's good for the agricultural community, it's very good for the resource sector, which is a big part of our economy. Okay, do you still support the harmonized sales tax, the HST? Would you bring it back if you're a premier? Well, Okay, A, I wouldn't bring it back because I think the public's already spoken on that. So I have to respect the public's opinion. But I also have to be true to my principles. I agree with everything I just said in that last clip. It was the right tax. There's not a single person that would say the provincial sales tax is the way to go. No other country in the world would follow the approach we've taken in B.C. But I think the public spoke on that. I'm not going to revisit it. Well, why, not, why not do it? Why not stick to your convictions if you believe it's the right thing to do? Why would you not do it? Well, just because I think the public spoke on that, and I think we have to respect the fact that the public uh, at the time said that uh, they didn't want to go forward with that, and I think I've got to respect what the public said. Sometimes okay. in politics, you have to take a little water with the wine. Okay, I, I heard you're, you're praising yourself last night on some of the achievements that you had in power, including bu building a lot of bridges and infrastructure in the Canada line. Of course, there were controversial tolls on a lot of those bridges you brought in. The NDP brought took the tolls off those bridges. Let me play another clip here for you, Kevin. In the past, you're, you're supporting tolling. Here's what you had to say then. Tolling is an appropriate way to raise uh, dollars for projects, to pay off the cost of projects, as long as certain principles are followed. And two of the key principles are there must be a free non-tolled alternative available that's easily accessible. And the second is when the projects are paid off, the tolls come off. Okay, is that still your position that you support bridge tolls? Would you put the tolls back on the bridges if you're Premier? Well, let's just be really clear about something here, Mike. That new 10-lane Portman Bridge wouldn't exist today if it was up to the NDP. They opposed it every step of the way. And putting tolls in the bridge was to achieve two purposes. One, to pay for it, and two, because it was environmentally the right thing to do. That's how you manage the growth in traffic, is by metering the traffic. Now, what did the NDP do? Yes, they took off the tolls. Was that smart politics? It was smart politics. 
Was it good for the environment? No. Traffic growth has grown 30%. There's a lot of people now that are going to be spending a lot more time sitting in traffic with their cars idling away. And I would argue that that was not the right thing to do from an environmental point of view. They can go out there and pretend they're environmentalists, but every decision they make works against the interests of the environment. So you'd bring the tolls back? No, I didn't say that that decision's been made. I can't can't revisit that. But what I will say... Why not? If you're you're premier, you can revisit anything. Let me finish my comment. There's a lot of folks up in Puskupi and Prince George and the peace country that will never drive over that bridge and are now paying for it thanks to the NDP. So you got to think about the province as a whole. Okay, well, if you built new infrastructure, would you consider tolling new bridges? Well, you know, we had, a, we had a tolling policy back then, and as I explained yeah. in the clip that you paid, that you played earlier, that we said as long as there was a free non-tolled alternative available, it would be considered. Uh, but, you know, really, there's very few places where it does make a lot of sense. So I think it's unlikely. I can't envision a new bridge crossing that would require one. Uh, but I think at the time, given our financial circumstances and given the uh, just the dead opposition of the NDP to, to building that Portman Bridge, I find it ironic that they're now trying to claim any kind of credit. Give me a break. Okay, you said last night at your campaign kickoff that the Liberal Party must be a welcoming, open, and tolerant party, and the party must welcome British Columbians of all races, sexualities, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds. How would that work in in a, in a operation if you were the leader of the party? Like, for example, if you had a candidate like Margaret Kunst from the Liberal Party in the last election who voted against a rainbow sidewalk in support of the LGBTQ community, would that candidate not be allowed to run for the Liberals under your leadership? Mike, my view on this is really straightforward. I have no problem with folks having their religious beliefs, whether it's Christian, Muslim, whatever the case may be. But what I want to be very clear about is that in a Kevin Falcon-led BC Liberal Party, there will be no room for anything that smacks of intolerance towards especially racialized or minority communities that are typically, uh, you know, treated very, very poorly. And that's just something I want to get very clear from the outset. Because if there's going to be any talk or any kind of intolerance, then I'm going to shut it down very, very quickly. And that means protecting the Christian community for their beliefs. That means protecting other people that may have beliefs that, that may not be the most popular thing. But once they traverse over into intolerance, there's yeah. not going to be any role for them in the BC Liberal Party. And I why want to make did, that clear from the outset. Why did you support Maxime Bernier, then, for leadership of the Federal Conservative Party? Well, probably for the same reason that the NDP leader of New Brunswick, Dominic Cardi, did. Because at the time when he was running, he was talking about some big economic policy ideas. He was talking about reaching out to the LGBTQ community. And I supported him for those reasons. But, you know, as soon as he, came, you know, as soon as he left the uh, mainstream uh, conservative party and went off and started his own thing. I've had nothing to do with him. I've never spoken to him since, and nor will I. I think his, uh, his, he, he's really gone downhill with a lot of his commentary. Okay, there's been uh, trouble in this party over accusations of intolerance and sexism in the past, and as you just said, that's a high priority for you to have an open and inclusive party. People will remember the uh, the the online roast Zoom call that the Liberals did where a lot of sexist jokes were made about NDP, MLA, Bo and Ma, and a lot of liberals apologized after that. You were on that call. I just took a look at it again. You can, you can see yourself laughing on there as these jokes are told about Bo and Ma. Do you think you owe her an apology over that? Uh, well, look, let's first of all be clear about something here, Mike, and thank you for reaching back. I don't know how far that is now uh, during the election, I suppose. But it's important to understand the context. This was a roast 
of Ralph Sultan, an 87-year-old MLA who had served for 20 years in the parliament. And the idea was that all of the roasters are supposed to make jokes about, uh, about that individual. When, yeah. when Jane Thornthwaite started making that joke, there was nervous laughter because all of us who were there listening had no idea where this joke was going. It was clearly totally inappropriate. But she did the right thing, and she apologized. And do, you, as I read, do you think I you should apologize? No, I didn't tell the joke, Mike. But I'm just saying that it was, it's an awkward situation to be in. I think many of us have probably been in situations where someone starts saying something, you're not sure where it's going to go, you're trying to be supportive, yeah. and, and it's, a, it's an awful situation. But she did apologize, and Bowen Ma accepted it, and I think that was appropriate. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. My guest is Kevin Falcon, the former Liberal Finance Minister running for the Liberal leadership. Kindly agreed to take a couple of calls. Pete in Vancouver on the open line. Hi. Hi. I have a very specific question about mental health because too often politicians of all stripes say they care about mental health, but they won't get into policy specifics. So there's a big problem in BC that many doctors aren't properly trained on ADD. So they underdiagnose us. They misdiagnosis through the smallest amount, the biggest media coverage, overdiagnose. And all of those require properly trained diagnosis. So I send out, I've been sending out a hey, list. What's your, what's your question? Question, will you commit to get the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC to require mandatory CME courses on ADHD so we stop getting discriminated and we get properly diagnosed? Kevin, Kevin Falcon. Yeah, thank, thank you, Pete. Look, I, I have to be honest and not profess to be, have any expertise in areas that I don't. I'm not a big expert in ADHD. Uh, I understand what it is, attention deficit disorder, obviously. Um, and I, I don't know what level of training doctors currently receive from the college. I'd have to look into that more. I just don't want to give you a... What about, a what about, mental, what about mental health in general uh, well, as mental, a challenge? Mental health, oh, look, this is a huge issue for me. It's something that's been very close to my family and many other families, I'm sure. Look, I think uh, I've, I've spent the last uh, eight, almost eight years working on the board of the Street to Home Foundation, studying homelessness and, and building over 3,000 homes for homeless people in Vancouver. And one thing we've learned is that it's not just the addictions challenge, it's the mental health challenge, and often it's both, mental health and addictions. And I, I can tell you almost everything we're doing in that field right now I think is missing the mark, and I think we have to have a totally new approach on how we deal with mental health and addiction. Some of these folks are very, very severely mentally health and addicted. Uh, have mental health and addiction issues and we leave them on the streets to be exploited and abused i think it's the most uncompassionate thing society can possibly do we need to gently lovingly remove them off the street into 24 7 care stabilize them make sure they're looked after and, and hopefully reintroduce them to society with support later but to think that we would just leave them there and expect them to make healthy decisions for their own well-being is just absolutely beyond me how would you be in the, in the minute and a half we've got left here? What would be your approach in, in government in terms of government spending deficits? Do you think this government is, is spending too much? The deficit's too big? I mean, when you were in government, you were regarded as a tax cutter, a, a red tape cutter, smaller, you believed in smaller government. Would that still be your approach? Well, Mike, you, know, you have to understand something. It's not that I'm fixated on being an accountant and balancing budgets, but it's no different than your own family. If you keep running up the credit card, you keep taking on doubling the mortgage in your house, after a while, it's going to cause problems. It's going to limit that, uh, what you're able to spend on other things that are important to the family. So too in government. The reason we have a balanced budget is not for the sake of a balanced budget. It's so that we have the dollars we need to fund first-class public services. You know, the problem I have with the NDP is in the few short years they've been there, they blew through the multi-billion dollar surplus that the BC Liberals left them. They were hanging on to a balanced budget by their fingernails, and that was before the global pandemic hit. 
And the mm. problem I have is they just don't know how to manage money. None of them come from a background that gives them the experience to, to, to manage and oversee large, large-scale operations. And I think we need confidence okay. in leadership in government right now. Thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, there are more callers on the line, but we'll just have to have you back. Simple as that. And uh, we we'll look forward to following your campaign. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Smitty. Love to come back. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the gang war that's still raging in Metro Vancouver. We've seen a rash of deadly shootings here over the last month, around, what, about a dozen shootings, seven fatal shootings we've seen in the streets of Metro in the last few weeks. Yesterday, Vancouver police taking the unusual step of releasing the names and photographs of six gangsters that they say are putting the public at risk. These guys are targets. The public should know who they are. Uh, this has been released yesterday by the Vancouver Police Department, the top six gangsters in the city. Let's discuss now with my guest, Fiona Wilson. She is the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Okay, what is the purpose of, of doing this? This seems unusual. Uh, why, would, why do you want to ID these guys at this point? So the escalation in gang violence is a huge public safety issue for us. And what we really wanted to do was provide the public with a tool that they can use to try and keep themselves safer. Right. So what if what should the public do if they see one of these guys? Like just go in the other direction, get away from them? So I would certainly suggest avoiding these individuals, but if they're doing anything that makes you uncomfortable or you feel like it's necessary for police to check in with these individuals, for example, if they're sitting on a patio at a restaurant, you can just call police and we will do that. Okay, how did you select these six guys? And some of these guys are notorious. You know, the Dollywall brothers, some of these guys have already been shot and survived in the past. How did they make the cut here for the top six? That's true. These are six individuals who we believe pose the greatest risk of harm to the public in the city of Vancouver. So you might see other lists coming out from other agencies. We're all coordinated. But this particular list is specific to Vancouver based on their past history, levels of violence. They are the ones who are likely to be shot at or to be doing the shooting in the future. And we wanted to, to the public to know these people so that they can avoid them. Right, okay. I encourage people to check out the poster and the photographs that you put out. You can see it at cknw.com. Are these guys in hiding? I mean, if they've got targets on their back, are they walking around in public or have they gone to ground? I mean, do you know where they are? So we have a general sense of where they are. We have a lot of intelligence on these individuals, um, but they are out and about and in the public, and that's why we thought it was prudent to release their, their photos and their names so that members of the public can be aware. Is, is there any chance or risk that a move like this in some ways potentially backfires and creates an even more dangerous situation if these photos are out there, the people who are trying to kill them now have clear photos of them, uh, maybe you've got some young hotshot up-and-coming gangsters, I'm going to go take one of these guys out, and maybe increases the risk that they, they could be targeted and shot. Well, there's no question that the people who are targeting these individuals will know exactly who they are and what they look like. Not that in the past we haven't seen cases of mistaken identity. However, we did a very careful assessment uh, in terms of these individuals' right to privacy and the right for the public to be notified 
as we have done in many other circumstances in the past, when we believe there is somebody in our community who is a threat to their public, to their safety. And that's why we made this decision here. And it was not a lighthearted decision. It's one that we did in consultation with our privacy lawyer, for example. Um, and we thought very carefully about, but at the end of the day, we felt like it would almost be negligent for us not to warn the public about these individuals. Okay, speaking to Vancouver Police Department, Deputy Chief Fiona Wilson with the uh, identities released yesterday of the top six most dangerous gangsters in the city. If these guys are so dangerous, how come they're out there walking around? Can't you go pick them up and lock them up? So we have a long history of enforcement against these individuals. We have done everything we can, and we will continue to take both covert and overt actions to target these individuals for everything from driving offenses right up the spectrum of any type of criminal activity you can imagine. However, the reality is that right now they are out and about in the public, and that's why we have released their their images. Right, so when you say there's overt and covert tracking of them like are the police following these these guys so actually just last week we stood up um, a task force called task force threshold and although we have been targeting these individuals over uh, a lengthy period of time this task force is specifically stood up in response to the increasing violence in the lower mainland attributed to these gangsters and we will be uh, we've got our a team of some of our best officers from the investigative division, from the operations division, um, everything from our emergency response team, our uh, homicide investigators. They will be targeting these individuals and many, many others in an effort to quell the violence and make it very yeah. clear to these individuals that they're not welcome in Vancouver. Okay, taking a look down the list of the, the names of the, the individuals re- you released yesterday, I see there are several different gangs represented here you've got a member of the hell's angels you've got the Dollywall brothers from the brothers keepers gang you've got the red scorpion gang but it's been pointed out though that notably absent here are any members of the united nations gang the un gang which which mm. we're, we're led to understand is like one of the main gangs involved in this war why mm. are there no why are there no un gangsters on the list here So our strategy here was to focus on the individuals that presented the largest public safety risk, regardless of what gang they were affiliated with. And quite frankly, those gang allegiances change over time. Um, These aren't people who are loyal necessary to any one particular gang. Um, But in any event, we decided to target the individuals that we believed posed the greatest risk to public safety. And this was the list we came up with. Okay, you mentioned task force threshold as an initiative here to combat this gang activity. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like how will this how will this task force threshold potentially reduce violence and keep people safe? So as I mentioned, we will be engaged in overt and covert activity. Um, Just this past weekend, for example, we had additional teams from our gang crime unit out and about in uniform in the city. We had additional surveillance units out and about in the city. Um, And we will continue to do that. And we will be hitting these folks from all different angles. So everything from our traffic enforcement, air support when necessary, surveillance um, uh, resources as appropriate. We will be doing everything we can to uh, target these individuals and to have an overt and covert presence in the city to make sure that uh, we address this escalating gang violence. Could you comment a little bit about the the apparent lack of remorse 
from these characters as the bullets are flying on the streets outside of shopping malls and skate parks and at at YVR, people ducking for cover on patios. I mean, it's almost like these guys just don't have any remorse. What what can you say about that? You know, quite frankly, Mike, this is one of the reasons why we've taken this um, the, this tactic because it's very clear that these gangsters have no regard for members of the public who have absolutely nothing to do with their gang ties or affiliations or the drug war that's going on, um, and that's one of our biggest concerns. We are very concerned that a person, an innocent person in the public, is going to be um, is going to be hurt, and that wouldn't be the first time that that's happened in Vancouver. Very tragic circumstances that we are trying to avoid here. Some of just lastly, some of the cases we've seen are very disturbing. And one of the ones that comes to mind was the fatal shooting of Bikram Deep Randawa, who was an off-duty provincial prison guard who was shot and killed in Delta. Has there been any? Has there been any update on that particular shooting? Like I remember police saying at the time that they were looking into whether this was a mistaken identity or looking into his past as a prison guard. Is there any update on that particular case? Um, I certainly wouldn't uh, speak for IHIT. They're the uh, agency that has conduct of that file. I have not heard of an update in that file, but I'm sure once there is, they will um, inform the public. Okay, we continue to follow this very closely, to say the least. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. That is Fiona Wilson there, the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department talking about the latest moves fighting the gang war that's raging in Metro Vancouver. Yesterday we saw the VPD take an unusual step here, releasing the names and photos of the top six dangerous gangsters in the city, as the Vancouver Police Department put it. Let's check in with another guest here, Stephen Matelski. I'm very pleased to welcome him back from Queen's University. He's one of Canada's top uh, experts on organized crime in Canada. Stephen, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me back, Mike. I know you were listening to that interview. Anything jump out at you there? Yeah, like I do have to agree with Deputy Chief that, you know, public safety, it would be negligent of the police not to release this information. It is very unusual, um, but, you know, when, when the right for the public to know, especially a public safety issue, uh, supersedes anybody's right to privacy, you know, they are yeah. obligated to to release us. So I definitely stand behind that. Okay, you don't have any concerns that this is going to actually in- increase the public danger if suddenly these guys are even more notorious and maybe go higher on the hit list? Well, that possibility always exists, Mike. And yeah. the one thing, you know, I never condone violence on any level. I never want to see anybody get injured. But the violence in, in British Columbia and the lower mainland has just become so volatile. And... Bottom line is, if you are signing up to do this kind of work as a gangster, you have to expect violence. But um, at the same time, I think it's really important at this stage, Mike, to highlight certain things like Crime Stoppers, where there might be a lot of people sitting on information out there that are afraid to come forward. And Crime Stoppers yeah. is one of those anonymous tools where people can drop a dime, make a phone call. You don't have to leave your name, number, or appear in court ever. And I think that's something we should really highlight because, you know, this overt covert strategy, um, you know, we've seen a lot of reactive response to this gang violence. And a lot of that is really unavoidable um, in terms of being proactive and staying on top of it. It's going to be a very daunting task yeah. uh, for task force threshold, uh, not impossible, but daunting. And any input from 
anybody out there in, commu- in the community. It could be somebody uh, living that life as a gangster or it could just be a member of the public. You know, those anonymous tips could prove, uh, you know, to be smaller pieces of that puzzle that could hopefully uh, curtail the situation. Welcome back. As we continue talking about Metro Vancouver's gang war, the unusual move yesterday by the Vancouver Police Department to issue that poster, the top six most dangerous gangsters in Vancouver. Just taking a look down this list, you got Harjeet and Gurinder Deo, also Akine Anigbo. These guys are with the Kang Red Scorpion Gang. The Dollywall Brothers, Berinder and Meninder. They're with the Brothers Keepers. Damien, those guys were both shot already and survived, the two of them. Damien Ryan, the Hell's Angels. This guy, this guy was shot too. He was uh, targeted by a hitman at Vancouver Airport, according to uh, Kim Boland, the very fine reporter in the Vancouver Sun. He's got a great story on this this morning. Really interesting to see the VPD uh, release this poster. Maybe we'll see other police departments uh, doing similar, releasing, uh, IDing these uh, these gangsters. Speaking with Stephen Matelski, he's one of Canada's leading experts in organized crime. Let's go to your phone calls here. Nikki in Vancouver. Hey, Nikki. My call. I'm so glad that this poster has been put out there, and I think we need to expose these people. I'm from the community. Often their families are in denial or do not acknowledge that their kids are doing anything wrong, but when they when these posters are put out, they cannot deny. And this way, they will probably sit down, I'm assuming, and have a, a, a conversation with their uh, their children or their sons or their, their daughters. But um, I think keep up the good work, do this. It will probably open up, um, having the Crime Stoppers will probably open up to people to give calls and recognize people and call these people in. Okay, Nikki, thank you very much for a good call. And Stephen Matelski, you commented briefly on this earlier, the, the need for members of the public, and especially like family members, right, to come forward to the police. And do you agree with Nikki there that maybe some family members are in denial about their loved ones being involved in this lifestyle? Maybe if they see their name, their name on a, a poster identifying them as a dangerous gangster, maybe that would convince them to give some information to the cops, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I thought she brought up some very valid, valid points. Um, one thing I would just want to, to note, Mike, as well, is I think that the proactive timing for VPD doing this is is prudent and it's proper. If you go back in the province of Quebec from 94 to 02, it was the biker wars with the Hells Angels and Rock Machine, and there was over 150 gangsters killed. And it, the public outcry didn't happen until shrapnel from a bomb in a Jeep killed 11-year-old Daniel Desrochers. De and, you know, yeah. if you just go back to May 8th in, in, in the Vancouver area and an innocent bystander was hit by a stray bullet, that easily could have been, you know, another homicide to make it eight and three weeks. So, you know, by yeah. proactively doing this, you know, there's, do, there's two types of duty to warn. You know, the police do have an obligation to actually warn uh, criminals or people who have a viable, credible threat against their life. But we're hitting the point now where... The, the right to privacy is outweighed and superseded by this duty to warn the public. Public safety is paramount. So I think this hopefully will be the start of, you know, uh, more enforcement and, you know, the reduction of some of these violent crimes. Let's squeeze in one more call here. James in Vancouver. James, you got to go quick, okay? Okay, I just disagree with the proactive statement. This is a reactive statement to let people know that they're in danger all the time, wherever they go, and that the police don't have any control over it. 
I think that they should take everything these guys have got when they get picked up, their houses, their cars, their bank accounts, and they need to prove where the money's coming from, and then maybe they can get somewhere to stop this. Okay, James, thanks a lot for calling in. Uh, we got more calls, but we're out of time. Stephen Matelski, thanks for your time and being on the show once again today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. For having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Bill C-10 now. Is the Justin Trudeau government about to regulate and censor your social media? Are they really going to do that? Opponents of the government's controversial new broadcasting act, Bill C-10, calling that legislation an attack on free speech. Could the government use this law to censor your Facebook and Instagram uploads? Could they really do that? The opposition is fearful that they might uh, that that could be in the works. The government is saying, no, no, we're just trying to update and modernize the rules and make large online media companies like YouTube pay their fair share toward Canadian artistic content. Let's discuss now with my guest, one of the leading experts in the country on this file, Michael Geist. He's a law professor and Canada research chair in the Internet and e-commerce law at the University of Ottawa. He's been an expert testifying on this in front of Commons committees. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Geist, thanks for coming on. Oh, a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, okay, so this is a, a, an issue that we followed here on on the show. Can you give us your basic take on it? I mean, I, I do find it complex for a lot of listeners to really get a grasp on what the government is trying to do here. But what is your concern primarily about Bill C-10? Sure. So, I mean, when the legislation was first introduced in the fall, it was, as I think you suggested, designed to bring in some of the large streaming services, the Netflix, Disney's, Amazons of the world, into the Canadian system. And while I think there were some problems, and there are problems with the legislation in terms of how they've tried to do that, I, I think that there are some core differences between Internet services, quite frankly, and a radio station or a television station, the 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 concern that really grew over the last month wasn't on those issues per se, but rather was what I would argue is a massive expansion in the scope of the bill. Government previously excluded user-generated content, the TikTok right. posts and Instagram feeds and all of those kinds of things, YouTube videos, from the scope of the act. They said, we're not going to regulate the users that post this stuff. We're not going to regulate their content. Then they suddenly pulled back one of those exemptions so that now all the content was at play, treated like a program, like any other program, subject to regulation by the CRTC. Okay, let me play a clip here for you from Liberal MP Julie DeBrusen, who was my guest on the show a few days back discussing this topic. And I asked her, is this about the government going after people's social media posts, their Facebook posts, their uploads on Instagram? And here's how she responded. The focus of this government entirely with this bill is to make sure that we are placing requirements on web giants and not at all about social media users. And in fact, the bill has an explicit exclusion that says that you, people who are uploading to social media are not covered by the Broadcasting Act. So 
just just to be clear, this isn't about cat videos or TikTok videos at all. Okay, so she says there is still an exclusion in there for social media uploads. Is that true? Well, as I just said, there were two exclusions, one for the users, the second for their content. The yeah. one for the users is is still there, yes, but the one for their content is not. And oh. the government's continued attempts, including Mr. Bruce's continued attempts, to shift the discussion to say, well, users aren't themselves going to have to show up before the CRTC. They're not being directly regulated. You know, I, this is the point, whether deliberately or otherwise, because their content is regulated. And so all of those posts on TikTok, potentially, it sounds crazy, but potentially even their cat videos are regulated because they're all treated as programs under the law. Okay, well, this has certainly become a a real political firefight in Ottawa over this bill. Let me play this clip for you, Professor Geist of Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, talking about the dangers of Bill C-10. Here he is. It's clear the minister doesn't even understand his own bill. If the CRTC can regulate what you see on your YouTube or Instagram feed, They can control what you see and what you learn about any given topic. Last year, that minister mused about licensing media companies. Now he's giving the government the ability to dictate which videos Canadians can see online. This bill is a direct attack on free speech. When is this minister going to drop his talking points, listen to Canadians, and scrap C-10? Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole there on the attack against Bill C-10. Professor Geis, you're one of the leading experts in the country. You've been called to testify as an expert in Ottawa on this. I mean, where do you think this is going? It sounded at one point like the government was maybe backing down a little bit on this or they would change the bill to address these concerns. But what's, what's the latest on that? Yeah, I don't get the sense that they are backing down. Uh, if anything, they're doubling down. And so they've okay. they've recognized that there are these public concerns. What they've sought to do is say that they're limiting the scope of what the CRTC's regulatory powers would be. So in some ways, that flies in the face of, for example, what DeBrusen said, because she can, on the one hand, say it's excluded from regulation, and on the other hand, say, okay, what we're going to do is limit the kind of regulation the CRTC can apply to this content you got to pick a lane. And in this case, yeah. it's clear that the lead, that the content is regulated. What they've tried to say is they're going to limit what the CRTC can do. But one of the things that they have given the CRTC the power to do, and this is where I think O'Toole speaking points come up, is that they've given the right to the CRTC to engage in what they call discoverability, to prioritize or deprioritize certain kinds of content. Now, people might say, oh, that works perhaps in a Netflix world for a curated service where they're making those choices. But the idea that we would have the CRTC decide in a user-generated content world for all of that millions of people posting different things, somehow what gets prioritized or deprioritized is is candidly something that no one else in the world endeavors to do. Wow. Well, I think you've done a tremendous job in highlighting these concerns. Let me play another clip here for you. This is the Federal Heritage Minister, Stephen Gilbeau, on Bill C-10. And he says, look, we're just trying to create more equity in broadcasting in this country. Here he is. This legislation will provide stronger financing mechanism and give more preeminence to what is produced in Canada in English, in French, and in Indigenous languages. It will also encourage better representation at all levels of production for racialized Canadians, for women, and for equity-seeking groups. Okay, as a federal heritage minister there, what do you think about this idea in principle that 
I guess the government is arguing, look, we're just trying to level the playing field. We've got big broadcasters in Canada that are subject to these strict conditions under the CRT around Canadian content, for example, and we're just trying to make sure that Netflix and these other big streaming services play by the same rules. Does that make sense, like, in principle? In principle, it does. I think, frankly, when you you scratch below the surface and take a look at what the rules actually say, you realize that the existing broadcasters, the incumbents, have a whole host of regulatory advantages. In some ways, this idea of leveling the playing field is, is odd, given that they're almost playing in two different games. You've got existing broadcasters that enjoy all kinds of benefits, simultaneous substitution that allows them to replace U.S. commercials for Canadian commercials that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, or must-carry regulations for people with cable packages that they have to pay for certain channels, even if they don't necessarily want to watch them. Streaming services don't have any of those advantages. In fact, you know, people can walk away from a subscription on any given month. And so they aren't really setting up a level playing field because those streaming services don't have all of those regulatory advantages. This is fundamentally about saying, well, we want them to, to pay up. And while I think many would say, well, that would be, that's a good thing, uh, it's worth right. recognizing that they are already paying. Um, some of the largest spenders in terms of film and television production in Canada right now are foreign services like Netflix. And so they've been doing it voluntarily. It's not entirely clear that we need legislation to force them to do something that they're already doing. Okay, Professor Geis, we just got one minute left here. Where do you see this going right now? Like, do you see, you mentioned that you don't think the government's backing down. It looks like they're doubling down in this bill. What do you think should be done with the bill? Should they scrap it completely, or can it be fixed and rescued? Yeah, I believe I was asked this yesterday at committee, and I guess my view would be that the starting point really ought to be to scrap the bill. We don't change broadcast legislation very frequently. These bills or these laws last for literally for decades, and so we need to get it right. We need to have a forward-looking piece of legislation, not one that kind of looks back in the rearview mirror and tries to say, well, this is what worked for radio stations or TV stations. We ought to apply the same kinds of rules to the Internet. It doesn't say we don't need regulation, but we need to ensure the regulation is fit for purpose. At the same time, if we want to ensure that creators are getting paid, we should do that, and we could do that now. We can use tax dollars, ensure that we appropriately tax these large companies, use some of that revenue to help support and fund some of these creator programs, and that's money that we could see come in this year, unlike this bill that is going to take years to unfold before the CRTC and in the courts. Okay, I think you've done an awesome job explaining this to Canadians. Thanks a lot for your expertise today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. Maybe you're a little confused this morning browsing social media and seeing all those photos and videos of the big storm that hit Vancouver last night. Were you watching it? Were you on the edge of your seat uh, through that storm last night, or did did you sleep through it? You might ask yourself, how did I miss it? Our show contributor, John Jang, now explains how that happens. John. If you missed the storm or the monsoon last night, it really means one of two things. A, you're a heavy, heavy sleeper, or B, you happen to live outside of the city of Vancouver, but it really was quite the experience. The storm set in suddenly and rather dramatically. At around 11.30 p.m., the gentle, somewhat relaxing melody of rain began falling heavier and heavier until finally the sky split in half and the fort tongues of lightning was followed up by a constant roar of thunder.
But as this 90-minute barrage kept some of us awake late into the night, it also meant thousands of BC Hydro customers this morning woke up to a rather rude surprise. With strong winds and lightning strikes damaging power lines across the region, BC Hydro crews were spotted in various areas trying to restore power in places like Richmond, Chilliwack, Surrey, and the North Shore. According to their website, about 3,000 customers are still waiting for their power to come back on this morning. But rain is once again on the forecast for later tonight, so could this happen all over again? Doug Lundquist, the meteorologist with Environment Canada, joins us now. And Doug, what did you see last night? Because I imagine in your line of work, a storm like that makes your job a whole lot of fun. You know, I looked at our lightning detection system when I came on this morning because I, I really wanted to see how busy it was. And we do get thunderstorms. We get them all the time, particularly in winter. But this one was really intense, and it went right over Vancouver. So you were that combination of not only intense thunderstorm, but it just centered right on the metro, went from like west of Point Roberts and then up across to the North Shore. And there was a lot of lightning strikes that really filled in the map, uh, so to speak, which, which can happen. It is a thing. If you're going to get thunderstorms like that on the coast, it is May, June or July, typically more in the interior. So you kind of were lucky that you got that on the coast. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we don't get something like this very often. So when we do, it becomes the thing of social media craze. People are tweeting about it, posting videos, because it kind of fascinates us. But Doug, you wanted to point out this was not unexpected. This was actually forecasted. Yeah, we had it in the forecast. And, you know, what happens with thunderstorms is they are highly localized even though there was thunder and lightning almost the whole province except vancouver island and the north coast it is local in the sense that some neighborhoods will will get it and others won't so out towards the east in the valley they didn't have it nearly as much and you know it came at a time of day in which i think it's even more exciting because it was at night and you see the flashes better right you know if it would have been during the day it wouldn't have been quite yeah it's still good but certainly it was uh timed right and aimed right for a show so we can thank mother nature and hopefully nobody got hurt i think it was a time of day when people were being safe and in bed perhaps yes absolutely in fact it woke me right up and i just kind of stayed up uh, throughout the entire experience i was fascinated personally Uh, i haven't seen any reports saying that people were hurt so we're hoping indeed that uh, everyone was able to stay safe but doug uh, we do know that rain's still very much on the forecast here locally over the next day or so so is there a chance that something like this happens yet again (laughs) yeah but you know it's like i said thunderstorms are random so to have two random thunderstorms that are intense, directed at exactly the same spot. No, it might be at Hope today or maybe at Creston. So it's probably somewhere else in BC. We do have thunderstorms forecast later this afternoon and tonight across much of the province. So we'll probably see something, but I'd be surprised. Yeah, don't count your lucky chips to have two beautiful shows in a row. <laughs> yeah, Maybe a few strikes here and there, but nothing like what we saw. Yeah, yeah, we've expired, I think, our luck uh, for the night, but I'm sure a lot of people... Well, that- if you get it, Buy a lotto ticket. Exactly. Yeah, you might be that lucky. That's kind of what the message is here. And, and Doug, just a reminder, because again, for, for most of us in Vancouver, because we don't deal with this very often, maybe we've forgotten, but if you are outside, whether you're in the car or maybe you're walking along and you get caught up in a storm like this because it, it set on so suddenly, uh, what is really the best thing to do? Because I know there's going to be some yeah. questions about, oh my goodness, like what's the safe place to go? I happen to be in the interior. I'm a Kelowna boy. We know what to do here, and I'm going to tell you. Get 
inside if you can. We have a saying here, when thunder roars, go indoors. So you want to be indoors. If that fails, a metal car. If, a, if lightning strikes a metal car, the metal cage of the car carries the charge away from you. So don't grab onto the metal bars, you know, or whatever. Just stay in your car. Uh, if you happen to be caught outside, and from the interior, I just can't believe I see this happen on the coast. People will use their umbrella in thunderstorms. Mm. That's like sticking a lightning rod in the air. Please, don't use an umbrella. Don't be golfing. Get away from risks. Uh, try and stay low, right? Be the shortest in the group, perhaps head down from the top of the hill. Just do things that make a lot of common sense to stay safe, but absolutely try to get indoors when thunder roars, go indoors. I love that, uh, and it's nice and catchy too, so easy to remember. And Doug, final question, what about trees? Yep. Because I, I understand like this could be a little conflicting. Some people say, yeah, it's good to stay under a nice big tree. Others say avoid that tree because it'll nope. also act as a lightning rod. Yeah, I don't like especially lone trees. Don't go under the trees. I do remember though when I was hiking and I was on like a moraine or whatever you call it, and I didn't want to be out in the open. I think you're better off in completely covered forest if you happen to be stuck outside because there's hundreds of trees that can get stuck. But lone trees and lone tall things, no, it would not be a smart thing to do. Absolutely right. All right, here's Doug Lundquist, uh, meteorologist with Environment Canada. Doug, appreciate you doing this for us today. It's a pleasure. Enjoy and stay safe.